Hey there, Kubrick fans. If you like what you hear during this episode, be sure to visit our website at thekubrickseries.com for more episodes and uncut interviews from the series. And you can also consider making a one-time or recurring monthly donation in any amount of your choosing if you'd like to support our podcast. That's thekubrickseries.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Kubrick series Uncut. In this episode, we speak with producer Robert Watts. Mr. Watts is best known for his producing duties on the Star Wars and Indiana Jones films, but he began his career as a production manager on 2001 A Space Odyssey. We've had back-to-back Kubrick interviews today, so... Uh, so I think you're fed up with Kubrick interviews <laughs> right now. We're, we're a long way from finishing... Uh, on the Kubrick show, so we're in it for the long haul. Uh, you know, Stanley I, has a kind of reputation, doesn't he? He's got like that kind of uh, mystique about him. Yes, yes. For film fans, he's he's this mythic figure, and and part of that, of course, is that he very seldom spoke about his the meaning of his own films, and and there there is a lot of ambiguity that runs throughout his films, and. Another part of it is that yeah. his films last like no other films that I know of. You're constantly discovering new things in them. Um, so, so this this well, show this show has um, been very valuable. Actually, Jamie, if you look at any art form, you go back to uh, any art form throughout our history. Mm-hmm. A true artist is uh, delivering a layered project mm. that. You know, in my view, I, I, I'm not sure that he's totally conscious of himself of what he's doing. Yeah. That will continually speak to ongoing generations. And that allows, uh, you know, Stanley's films to become such classics because they contain that element. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean, Jamie? I absolutely know what you mean. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting an, an earful of it throughout the series. I mean, it's... Uh, it's obvious with 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 Kubrick. Um, tell me about him. How you first encountered him? How did how did that take place? Well, um, <clears throat> the first time I I I, I sort of uh, was uh, I was doing a film, a James Bond movie in the Bahamas called Thunderball in the mid sixties and sixty five. Mm-hmm. And I'd previously done it, uh, a film in England called Darling, which was Julie Christie's first uh, major role. Yeah, was that... Uh, Academy Award, believe it or not. Yeah, was that John Schlesinger, um, <clears throat> Darling? Is that the And film? the associate producer on that was a guy called Victor Linden. And I'm working down in the Bahamas on Thunderball, James Bond movie, and I get a call from Victor Linden saying, uh, Robert, um, uh, would you like to... Uh, Think about, would you like to come and meet Stanley Kubrick, who's doing a film called 2001 Space Odyssey? So as luck would have it, because this is before Stanley moved to England, where you know he spent the last part of his life, quite considerable part of his life. Mm -hmm. He was still living in New York. I'm in Nassau. And I finished up, you know, shooting with the second unit there. And I said to the production manager, I'd li- I, I really would like to go to New York on the way home for three or four days. And I flew up to New York and I first met Stanley 
in an apartment he had on Central Park West. Hmm. And Victor was there, and he said, yeah, we're doing this film, you know. And, hey, like all of them, you know, Jamie, they were jobs for us. We were passionate about what we do, but they're still jobs, you know. You've still got to pay the rent and all of that. Mm -hmm. So I said, yes, and I flew back to England, and I completed all the work on Thunderball, and then I went to work with Stanley. So what was your what happened, you know? What was your consciousness of his films prior to to meeting him? Oh no, I, I was I was very aware of his films, you know, particularly going back to um, you know films like um, um, Spartacus and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. You know, and but I wasn't, you know, I was not. How can I put it? I was not a Stanley Kubrick fan or anything, but I was very well aware of his work. Um, but, you know, it was an interesting job. Yeah, and tell me about that job. It was worth looking at because, you know, it had, um, you know, I wasn't a science fiction buff either, Jamie. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was 2001 A Space Odyssey was interesting. I'd read... Um, two or three of Arthur Clarke's books, which I'd always enjoyed, but I was not like, you know, a mega science fiction freak or anything. Right. And to be honest, you know, um, it's a job for us too. We have to earn money, and, you know, in in our game, when the film's done, you're out of work. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you come into everyone like that. But Stanley, absolutely, you know, Stanley was different in a way. No, he certainly was different. I mean, to anything I'd uh, come upon before. And how, how, was, how was he different? <clears throat> he was absolutely meticulous in everything that he did, right? Mm-hmm. Um, he was... Uh, how can I put it? For example, as we're, we're, we're doing 2001 right, we've got uh, people working with us as technical advisors out of Huntsville, Alabama, uh, guys who've worked with Werner von Braun and all the post-Second World War space programming. The rest. We've got these people as technical advisors. He could absorb the project to the level that he would question them, mm. their responses. You see what I mean? Yeah, yeah. You know, he'd have the expert standing there, but occasionally he'd somehow have acquired something that the expert hadn't. Mm. Well, he was quite like... Um, <clears throat> but for me, I mean, working with him, you know, we used to sit down and, uh, ooh, most weekends before we started shooting, Saturday and Sunday, when the normal work isn't going on, we would sit in the dining room up at uh, the old MGM Studios north of London in Boreham Wood, just up the road from where I did the Star Wars and Indiana Jones somewhat later in my career. Mm-hmm. Um, we would sit there and go through the script. And I don't know what anybody else has told you, but Stanley was one of the funniest guys, you know, We'd sit there, and I mean, bear in mind, we're working at the weekend, Saturday and Sunday. <laughs> Stanley was the kind of guy, you know, who would always work seven days a week. He's the only person I know 
that has made business calls to people's homes on actually Christmas Day. <laughs> you like that? Yeah. You know, very focused. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Christ, 2001, you know, we have here in, uh, you know, Christmas, we have Christmas Day, and the day after is also a public holiday, the 26th here. Mm. It just happens to be an old tradition from back in the Victorian era, right? Mm-hmm. The day we started shooting 2001 was the 27th of December, mm. 1965. Can you imagine a worse day to start shooting immediately <laughs> after a long public holiday? Yeah. I mean, your last-minute things that you're normally doing because you're starting shooting tomorrow or Monday are, like, advanced considerably because you've got to do it before all the Christmas holiday starts. And that's the moment Stanley picked to start. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the, well, I, I'm sure you know all this, JB, but I mean, the first set was the TMA-1 excavation site on the moon surface with the block. Mm-hmm. And that was the first shot we ever did in the movie. But he was great. I mean, I tell you, he is one of the funniest guys at sitting at those meetings. I kind of sometimes get the impression that people see him as some kind of tortured genius. Mm-hmm. No, I don't think so. I think he was just a really good filmmaker who understood the genre in which he worked, absorbed himself in story, which he was capable of doing, and, as I said to you earlier, became uh, more knowledgeable than the technical advisor. Well, and he, had this, else. he had this insatiable curiosity and just like you said this ability to absorb all of this information and you can see it in his films you can see that the reason why he took so long to make his films was that he was exhausting every every possibility every idea that he possibly could i mean you know if you look at the way stanley's mind works if you like well i'm only going to generalize here because how could i know how it works He's got an essence that, you know, I recognize and I have elements of it in myself a great deal, mm-hmm. is that he contains a childlike inquiry quality, but but lays that against the number of years that he's actually been alive. And if you can harness those two qualities, you know, the childlike purity of perception combined with the years of experience, I think that's how, how he did it, and I've seen it with others. Crikey Moses, you know. I've mm-hmm. worked in my, that world so much in my whole life. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do, I do. That constant questing for something new mm-hmm. that, that a child has as it grows up, but with all the experience that he's had, you combine the two, I think that's where you get this kind of mega takeoff point. And 2001 was definitely, I mean, it, it's it's obvious. It, it it was absolutely something new. It kind of it, it changed, it changed the art form in a way. It raised it to a higher level. Did you sense that you were were working on something that that could have that enormous impact that that was so revolutionary? Um, uh, do you know? <clears throat> The answer to the question is no, because at the time it isn't relevant. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
just before I dubbed the James Bond movie, which was the fourth in the series, Thunderball, right, the first one I'd done, I knew it was going to be a hit. But I wasn't concerning myself with, was it genre-changing? No, it wasn't. There had been three before it. Mm -hmm. 2001, who knows? I mean, you know, you've got Arthur C. Clarke, who I was familiar with. As I told you, I'd read books of his back when I was still at school. Um, Stanley, he had a body of work, but it was a very individual process, 2001, you know. And Stanley was a... a you know, he really had arrived at a point where he could actually tell the studio, I'm going to do it my way, and I don't care how much it costs. And he's the only person I've ever worked with where that was true. And the time it came to pass was on 2001. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, Stanley's had this reputation ever since of going way over schedule and budget, you know, which he does, and then did do. Drove me nuts on The Shining, because I was on The Empire Strikes Back, trying, I needed the stages, and he's going <laughs> on and on and on. Um, but on 2001, we set off on that movie, and we, 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 we began shooting, as I'll say, the day after the Christmas holiday, and we rammed on through, and everything went absolutely perfectly. We were bang on schedule through a series of sets. And then we arrived on the centrifuge set that we had um, uh, on stage three at the old MGM studio. It was the biggest sound stage in uh, Europe at that time. That's all long gone now, but there we built this centrifuge, which was highly complex, and I'm sure you've had a million people on here who technically know more about it than I, except that it was, nobody had ever attempted anything like it in the history of movies. Mm. It was a piece of hardware. This thing actually went round, and it had slip rings with all the electrics, everything that was fed into it had to go through slip rings because you couldn't have cable. And it was the most amazing piece of engineering. It went to right to the roof of the stage. Hmm. And we had to have a way where we could slot the camera in and nobody could look through the camera because it was, it was you know, the guys, uh, uh, Keir Dulé and Gary Lockwood and Ruddy Rallard, a couple of uh, hamsters in a, in a wheel. <laughs> right. And the camera's through a slot. And it was the first time ever, well, certainly in my experience, that we had uh, a video interlock with it. And it was strapped to the side of the television camera, so there were obviously parallax problems. And outside, we could sit and watch on this really bad black-and-white screen. We had no means of recording it. Mm. You watched it, and that was it. And it was an amazing advance. I'd never seen it. Nowadays, you know, every movie you make, there's video assist. Mm-hmm. But it was the first. It was a breakthrough. And everything Stanley did was, you know, right on the cutting edge technologically because there are a lot of technological things on 2001. For example, the entire movie was original negative. There wasn't a single dupe for the optical process that existed at the time in that film. And I could, I could go on endlessly about that, but I don't know how long you want this to run, J.B., so... <laughs> Uh, I mean, it was it was technical breakthrough. It was done in a way that nobody ever attempted to do a movie like that mm-hmm, before. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
the first camera day to the last camera day was two years and three months. And I'm talking about filming. I'm not talking about pre-production and post-production. But everything that he did was absolutely, you know, perfect. Well, I I am interested because you've worked on, excuse me, you've worked on so many just great films that mean a lot to me and you know, millions of people around the world in their own lives. But uh, what made his working process uh, unique? Tell me about his, his process as you observed it. Sorry? About his process we were using? The, the, his, Is that what you said, James? His, his process of, of directing, how did, how, what made that unique among the other filmmakers that you've collaborated with? Um. I would say because, you know, his method of directing was that he directed everything from the actors down to the last nail that was driven in the set. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I can't be more precise than that, Jamie. What am I going to say? I've never known a person (laughs) who had such attention to detail. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, because directors... Yeah, do their thing because they're mainly they're they're telling the story and we're all there to help them tell the story. That's all we were there for, and it's coming through the actors in the main. But I'll say it was Stanley. It was coming out of every slip ring on that fucking centrifuge. <laughs> Sorry, I, I'll say it again in case you need it. No, no, no. You're every you're fine. Every slip ring on that centrifuge. Right. Just in case you need an edit, Jamie. <laughs> um, but I mean. What happened there with Stanley was we were bang on schedule, right? We arrive on the centrifuge, and we are scheduled on it for 10 days. And all the TV screens and the rest of it are back projections, 16-millimeter projections, and this whole shooting batch is going round and round like a giant Ferris wheel. And we go on it 10 days. You know how long we were on it? Mm-mm. 10 weeks. Oh, at that point, the schedule fell apart. <laughs> I would say so. Yeah. But prior, prior, everything we shot prior to that, we were bang on schedule. But I mean, it just, you know, I don't know. And how did Man. he? How did he approach the crew uh, with the overages when they when they went so far over schedule? What what would be his approach to the crew? Look, all I can tell you is because I've never experienced anything quite like it before in my life was, we arrived at a point where it seemed to become irrelevant. It was going to take as long as it was going to take. Mm -hmm. Now, since then, you know, that's been uh, usually true of all the films Stanley made. Um, I I can only assume that the studios who finance them say, okay, here's the budget from Stanley and his schedule. Let's multiply it by five and allow for that and let him go. Because that's the way it was afterwards. I mean, I only ever did the one. And to be absolutely honest, I wasn't there until the end when they finished all the models or anything. Mm -hmm. But he was, you know, he was a perfectionist. And he got himself in a position where he could be that, you know. And I hear, I hear a lot of. Don't ask me how or why. I've never come across it before, and I certainly never got it with Star Wars. 
know, you let the project schedule. Well, I, I do hear a lot about obviously his his very unique uh, partnership with with Warner Brothers, starting with Clockwork Orange, <clears throat> and the enormous freedom he had. But also that yeah, he, well, that, that was uh, later because I two thousand one was MGM. MGM, yes, sir. But um, a lot and of people, I never worked with him again. But yes, you did. I I reckon what I just said. I must have gone. Oh yeah, he says it's going to cost ten million. Well, let's say forty million, but don't tell him. And you know, <laughs> I don't know because it's outside the realm of the normal studio procedure to allow films to be like that. Right. But I, I do, I, I have mean, heard... Race, Stanley shot The Shining, because I was in the studio at the same time, um, preparing Empire Strikes Back. He shot it in continuity. So go onto this set, do that bit, the guy exits that set, move to the next stage, do the bit where you cut... You don't do it like that, it's really expensive. <laughs> I mean, I, I wasn't on the film, so I can't really elaborate on it. But that's the way he shot it, in continuity. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the the unveiling of the final film. And when you first saw it, uh, what what surprised you about it, having been so intimately involved in the production of it? What was the experience well, like yeah, watching it? Of course, there was a time when I now am elsewhere, because I've gone, the film isn't finished yet, the first time I saw it, funny enough, was in New York. Mm-hmm. I saw it at uh, Ziegfeld, which was a 70-mil theatre, and it was perfect. Mm-hmm. And it just opened. God knows, I can't remember what I was doing, but I was in New York for some reason. That's where I first saw it. And I watched the movie, and it, you know, it was the first week that it was playing. I remember at the end of it, I was sitting all on my own in the theatre because I was there, you know, some, I, don't, I can't remember why, why I was there, but... I remember after it, there was a guy sitting next to me. Oh, no, my brother was with me. There were two. There was a guy sitting next to me and said, God Almighty, do you know what that was all about? (laughs) And I said to him, yes, I do, actually. Because when we did the whole thing, there was a whole lot of uh, voiceover in the script that explained why everything was happening. Hmm. Which uh, Stanley chose to ignore, I think, for the very best of reasons because he left it open to the people and, you know, just make their own interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. After all, you know, the end sequence uh, with Bowman when he leaves the... Uh, when he returns to Earth, you know, those were the days of acid trips, boys, and was that an acid trip, wasn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I've, I've, heard, that, I've heard that interpretation of it, uh, and how it was it was definitely a product of its time, uh, and, and yet... Oh, it's, you know, if you look at it, mm-hmm. I mean, for example, I remember we had meetings and we said, now, we are not going to let the costumes dictate the period we're shooting it in, right? Mm-hmm. So if you look on, on, the, um, on Discovery, where Bowman and um, Keir Dulay and Gary Lockwood they're dressed in these standard jumpsuits that don't look out of place today and the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And we had uh, a costume designer called Hardy Amos who used to do all the Queen of England's uh, clothes at that time. 
he came in to design it. And, and, and Stanley was like, no, we, it's got to. It's, I don't want it to be like Forbidden Planet, where everybody looks like they're dressed in the 50s, you know. Mm-hmm. And he's very precise about that. You go back and look at 2001 today, you look at the civilian clothes, they look exactly like the things the Beatles were wearing at the time. Mm-hmm. You can't escape the period you're in. And we consciously tried not to. Hmm. If you look at it, honestly, go and look at 2001 and look at the suits. And then think of, you know, the Beatles at about 65, 66. You're right. You're right. Absolutely. Same clothes. Yeah, yeah. So it's as dated, but not with the uh, other things, like spacesuits. No, I think they're great. Hey, an aside, by the way, you know those spacesuits in 2001? Mm-hmm. that uh, they, they, they wore, right? They were made by a company in Manchester in England. Do you know what the name of the company was? Uh-uh. Because I went up to see them. I couldn't believe it when they told me. The company was called Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> that weird or what? <laughs> wow. Uh, I was curious because you have, <clears throat> excuse me, you've worked with with Mr. Lucas and Mr. Spielberg, and, and that's just a just so, such great films and such great collaborators you've had. Could you tell me the impact of 2001 on that that future generation of filmmakers that came up later in the in, well, in the 70s? Let's put it this way. Um, when we first came together, those of us, you know, who were first on the design and myself, we were just beginning on Star Wars. Um, George said, right, I want to show you, uh, it was four films he showed us. And he says, I want elements of all these, these four films in this, you know, somehow in this. It was giving us an idea about uh, a world of science fiction where things leap oil that didn't always work which is not normal in the way it was before mm-hmm. so the four films he showed us first one was 2001 mm-hmm. and because he obviously was highly influenced by that he, he very much he did influence Star Wars hey the apes in 2001 you know the jaw mechanism in them it's the same that, that we used to Chewbacca because Stuart Freeborn is the same makeup guy and he developed the mechanism the Chewbacca eventual, you know, jaw mechanism, mm. way back then in the mid-60s. And I was working with him when, when, when he did that. So, you know, there are powers. So George shows his four movies. 2001 was one of them. The other one was a, a movie called Silent Running, mm-hmm. which I, I'm sure you're familiar with, most science fiction film. Oh, yeah. Then he showed us two other films that were completely non-science fiction, once was one was uh, Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West, and the other was uh, Federico Fellini's Satyricum. Hmm. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with those films, but if you went and looked at those four films, you'll see the elements of them in the whole all of Star Wars. Yeah. So, yes, of course they were influenced by. It. My God. Mm. You know. D- did you have any encounters? I, I know you mentioned the. Um... The, the the period of time when The Shining was shooting at the soundstage and you were waiting to, to start with Empire. Uh, did you have communications or, or meetings with him any time in the intervening what, years? Yeah, no, yes, sir. Not really. <laughs> he 
I'm not on his film. That's quite different. No, I see it. You see how Larry the rest of it walking around the studio. Now, I dealt with his producer, who was his uh, brother-in-law, a guy called Jan Harland, who mm-hmm. I'm sure you must have spoken to. We're trying. Yes, sir. Yeah. So that's who I dealt with, because, I mean, Stanley, Stanley, thank God. I mean, you know, he, he was running way over schedule, for example, on The Shining. And I remember I was in the studio one night, and I was working late. And somebody came, right, and said, Robert, one of the stages is on fire. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And one of the stages that he's still got his set on was on fire. So in the end, not only didn't I have uh, the stages because I needed to get them, I was missing one entirely that I never had entirely because it burnt to the ground. <laughs> so thanks, Stanley. No, but he's worth it because he's a, he is a great director. Yeah, very much, very much. Uh, just to get your personal take on on the other films in his career, as you followed his his film work after 2001, what, what were you particularly taken yeah, by? What was great about Stanley was that that he, <laughs> he never he never stuck to any particular genre. It was always totally different. Mm-hmm. You know, Clockwork Orange, Lolita, uh, uh, Barry Lyndon. All these films, right through to Full Metal Jacket. Now, Stanley Kubrick is the only person on the planet who would shoot a movie set in Vietnam in England. Mm-hmm. And he did. He shot it all down in the London docks. Couldn't right. believe it. Uh. It's only because he, Stanley wouldn't fly in a plane. And it, I think, it, you know, so in the end, he, he shot everything in England. Mm. I mean, would you, uh, you know, if somebody gave you a Vietnam script, Jamie, would you go, ooh, I'll tell you where we're going to shoot you. How about <laughs> the London docks? Right. I mean, come on. Yeah, and he had the he had the, the trees uh, from that region all shipped in. and uh, those, All those palm trees and yeah. stuff. Uh-huh. That's the one favor he did for me, because when I did Who Framed Roger Rabbit, I shot, we shot all the exteriors in L.A. except one, which was the exterior of the Acme factory, you know, mm-hmm. at the end of the movie and the rest of it, where they got the dip truck and the rest of it. We, had, we shot the exterior there. And it, it was, it, it's actually in London. It's right opposite the BBC, that building. And I wanted to shoot it in the same place. So it's the only exterior. So I thought, <laughs> I needed some palm trees. So I went, oh, I know who to call. So I called the guys who'd been on Full Metal Jack and said, where'd you get those palm trees? Oh, they said, we gave them the name of the company in Spain, and we brought in the same ones, <laughs> or similar ones. Wow. Uh, there's so much to talk to you about. And, and outside of Mr. Kubrick, I would love to have another conversation with you sometime in the near future, because, I mean, you're... Jamie, any time. Your work is amazing. my number. I, I do. I'm, I'm yes. quite happy to do it live or whatever, but you know, whatever. You know, give me a call. I'd love to do that. Are you working on anything uh, right now? Oh yeah, I'm. I'm working. I've, I've got a number of things going now because I've formed a new company. Okay. Mm-hmm. Here, I've been out for a couple of years, which has has delayed everything because I had cancer. Mm. But I'm now cured of the cancer. Oh good. So that's gone. Good. And so I've just re structuring this, uh, all the stuff I'm doing, and I should be shooting a movie next year. 
Mm. God willing, etc. You know what it's like, Jamie. <laughs> It, it's it's tough out there. Is it is it tougher than it's ever been to to mount a, a film project? It's yeah. I you know it's always been tough, and I suppose in some ways it's even tougher now because it's less structured. Mm. Mm-hmm. You know, there's things going off in all directions all around you, but you can actually deliver to the screen. Um, probably more production value with the use of CGI now than you could ever done for the kind of money that those things can be produced at this time. So mm-hmm. there, is, there are opportunities at the same time that there are the, you know, the problems. Mm. Well, it's evolving all the time. It is, yeah. I mean, the three Star Wars I did, we could not possibly do the things that were done in the three that were made later that Rick McCullum produced. Right. Yeah, we didn't have the technology then to do it. And and the people that you've that you've worked with, Mr. Kubrick and Mr. Lucas and, and Mr. Spielberg, I mean, they've been the 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 forefathers of that technology technology movement. I mean, well, it's, yeah. it, it's always you know, I feel quite fortunate that I've worked on three films that I I think developed a kind of new technology. The first one was 2001. Mm-hmm. Because of the way it was shot, uh, you know, it's all original Meg and it's just very difficult to do because you're having to shoot ten takes of something and you only process, process one of them and you line up to it and then you use the other nine you've got left so that when you end up you've got all the elements in but it's original negative. So Dissolve. Now we're on Star Wars. Now same problem because you know it's all dupe for effects. Mm-hmm. In other words, optical printers to add things. So, but we're now working with a new system. We're, we're but it's an old system that way predates 2001, which is this division. And this division was a double negative thing. I think Paramount uh, uh, delivered it originally. This division high fidelity because it's a double sized negative. Mm. So on um, Star Wars, we shot all the stuff that had to have other added bits on this double sized negative. So when you made a dupe down, you didn't get a quality loss. So it's the same thing Kubrick was doing, but using some old equipment, but uh, forward in a sense. And uh, we did all those, the three Star Wars like that and the three Indiana Jones. Uh, but now, I even did um, Who Trained Roger Rabbit like that. Hmm. It was all done. Every single cell in Roger Rabbit was painted by one person by hand, you know. Yeah. Which nowadays doesn't exist. Because there was a moment when the computer appeared, and um, I produced an animated film for, with Spielberg, and I produced. Uh, called uh, American Tale Five Goes West mm-hmm. and the last shot in that film is a, is a computer generated shot the rest of that film is entirely hand painted mm. you know Roger Rabbit was like that nowadays with the advent of CGI a whole new world's opened up it has yeah and a lot of people are regretful of the idea that 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 beautifully and kind of meticulously hand-drawn animation has has died died off to some extent. 
Well, yeah. The other thing, of course, is, you know, all those cells. And Disney used to clean them off in the old days. You know what they're worth now? Mm. Mm. Yeah. You know, if you had some cells from the early, from the Disney movies from the 30s, they were worth a fortune. Yeah. Mm. Um, and, of course, that kind of thing doesn't exist in the same form. But, you know, that's moving it on. At least then one can still deliver, or can deliver at a, uh, at a better cost, at a higher quality. Yeah. In certain instances. Some people would say that the human element, I mean, for example, let's go back, Indiana Jones, for example. You remember Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom? When it cut boat bridge and all the guys fall into the river and get eaten by the crocodiles and the rest of it? Right. We did that real in Sri Lanka uh, and, and the canyon. Today, you would do that CGI. You wouldn't tempt it for real. Mm-hmm. But I'll tell you what, do it for real is a hell of a lot more exciting. <laughs> <clears throat> I would imagine so. <clears throat> yeah, and it works. But, I mean, we had to cut four cables with explosive bolts when that thing went, when we were shooting it. I had seven cameras on it. And if one of them hadn't won, we were screwed. Uh, well, it I, worked. I, it did work. And i got to tell you, T- Temple of Doom is one of my all-time favorite films. I, I, oh, thank you. Yeah. It is a defining movie from, from my adolescence that uh, continues to stay with me to this day. I, I love that film. Well, it, you know, it's the first one I actually finally got the produced by credit on. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, because I'd been before that co-producer, associate producer, but this is well, that was the first one. It's quite a dark film, but it's really well made. Oh, I, mean, I think it's great. It's too. it's beautiful. It's it's it's, it's so, such a ride. It is so much fun and so I mean it it exhilarates me uh, that film. Oh yeah, it was, you know it was quite a prize film to make too. And I mean, I loved working with Stephen when he's directing that those films. They're the best kind of film for him. Mm-hmm. He's so creative, and you know, it's hard work, but man, it's great, though. 